Join all the listeners who are listening right now ad-free by clicking subscribe on Apple Podcast, going to patreon.com slash the Murder Diaries pod, or in Spotify, search the Murder Diaries ad-free. Natalie and I are so excited to bring you a really special episode today. We're bringing in Lindsay Franca and Laura Treader from the American Girl Women podcast. We're so excited to have you guys. Hey, we're so excited to be here. <laughs> Truly, such an honor to connect today. So thank you for having us. So Lindsay and I are the hosts of a podcast, American Girl Women, uh, which focuses on nostalgia for the American Girl brand, particularly from the 90s and early 2000s. Absolutely. We really love tapping into this like millennial nostalgia moment and finding like-minded people who had a shared experience. And it's really brought so many wonderful people together. We're really just in awe of the AG community out there. And then also just, you know, people who haven't thought about American Girl in many, many years, like Laura and I, just kind of coming together on this shared childhood or present adulthood um, pastime. American Girl is something that's always stuck with me throughout the years. And one of the victims in today's case also was an American Girl's girl when she unfortunately lost her life. Just a quick disclaimer for all of our listeners. Yes, this is Natalie. And yes, I am sick and have kind of lost my voice, but we're going to work with it today because this is an important story that deserves to be told. Who killed the Jacobs family is the question that has haunted Sacramento's Upperland Park neighborhood for 33 years. The Jacobs were a typical American family until one January morning in 1991 when they were brutally slain in the one place that they should have been the safest, their home. Dozens of detectives have tried to crack the case to untangle their rumors and speculation, but justice has yet to be served. Their names were Mick, Marcy, and Jennifer Jacobs. And this is their story. You still think it's in my head I'm walking with the dead. The Jacobs family consisted of Mick, Marcy, and their daughter, Jennifer. Marcy was born February 23rd, 1960. Throughout her life, she actually worked in a clerical respect for the California Department of Justice. Michael, also known by those he loved as Mick, was born October 1st, 1957. Mick was the baby of the family. He had an older brother, Mark, and a couple of older sisters, Jenny and Marie. Again, he always went by Mickey or Mick, or those who knew him well called him one of those two nicknames. His sister said that he literally never went by Mike or Michael. This was a really important statement that she made in one of her interviews. Mick and his family grew up near the Lawrence Park area in Sacramento. And they had a ton of friends. Mick especially had a ton of friends that lived near, you know, just that idea of being the neighborhood kids gang. And he remained close with a lot of those friends up until his murder. Now, Lawrence Park was where Mick and his friends lived near, like I said. And this kind of became their place. His friend, Kathy, really had a lot to say and reminisce about 
this idea of them constantly having Lawrence Park as their place where they would just meet up and do what kids do. One of the neighborhood kids that was part of the, the gang, if you will, called Mick the best out of all of us. He was the friend in the friend group that sort of followed the rules and he wasn't really partaking in some of those like teenage experimental things that a lot of teenagers do, if you will. So he wasn't smoking when others were smoking around them. He just wasn't much of a troublemaker. Kathy made sure to let us know that the girls really liked him too. Mick was just shy of six feet. He was blonde. He had light eyes and a great smile. Now, his sister remembers that he typically wore a beard and she said that it looked good on him. So it was kind of one of Mick's trademarks. He had his blonde beard. He was also really athletic. So again, the girls were super into Mick. Now, Marcy and Mick grew up in that same neighborhood. But Marcy, again, was born in 1960, so she was a few years younger than him. So she wasn't always around at the park, at least around the same age group kids, but she did go to all of the same schools that Mick did. So they definitely had some interactions growing up and some commonalities there that ended up bringing them together. Marcy was a little bit more soft-spoken. She was down-to-earth, but the loved one that was describing her made sure to say she wasn't shy. She was fun to be around. She was just, again, soft-spoken, really sweet. In fact, quote, a sweetheart of a person. Mick and Marcy, like I said, those kind of commonalities ended up bringing them together, but it wasn't really until just after high school. They hadn't really been close in those earlier teen years, but that same friend Kathy recalls that they were perfect for each other because Marcy was very suited to Mickey. They were kind, good kids, and good adults. That's a direct quote again. Their daughter, Jenny, was born on August 13th, 1981. She was outgoing and very sweet. A neighbor remembers just how sweet Jenny really was and always loved to visit her when she was out mowing her lawn and she would come over and play with her dog. Just, it really kind of lit up that neighbor's world when Jenny was around. Jenny often really liked to wear bows in her hair, and she had little freckles. After Jenny was born, several years down the road in 1988, Mick and Marcy got married. Mick's sister actually recalls that the wedding was a really, really happy and fun occasion. There was dancing and live music, what you would expect from a very stereotypical wedding. Mick, Marcy, and Jennifer's life was really growing and growing in a wonderful way. In August of 1989, the family moved to the Land Park area, which was an up-and-coming neighborhood still in Sacramento. It's a modest area closer to downtown. Their neighbor from across the street said that the family made really great neighbors. She mentions that they maintained the property and the home well, and they just didn't cause any type of issues. And again, Jenny used to go and visit that neighbor and play with her dog and was really just an enjoyable neighbor to have. Marcy was known to be a really hard worker, and at the time of her murder, she was taking night classes, studying to become a crime scene investigator. Jenny was busy attending Crocker Riverside Elementary School, and her friend Brooke, that also attended school with her, said that she loved Jenny. Brooke and Jenny used to love Disney's 1989, The Little Mermaid, and She said that one time they literally had an entire day where they played in a kiddie pool and ran around singing songs from the movie. And this kind of reminds me of that idea of like 
Jenny being an American girl girl. So it doesn't surprise me that an American girl plays a role in this case because this is just so fitting, right? Little Mermaid, Disney, American girl. For me personally, like I tie those types of things together, these quintessential um, American childhood things. While Paige has been talking, I've been sending photos of the Jacobs family to our friends here from the American Girl Women podcast. They include wedding photos of the Jacobs family with Jennifer standing along with her parents. We have photos of the family on vacation, photos of Jennifer and her stuffed animals, and even a photo of the family dog. My reasoning for doing this is to further humanize to our listeners and especially our guests that these are real people with real lives who we're talking about. And so I want to invite them to ask any questions you have, any comments you have about the photos that you see or anything that you've heard so far. And for our listeners, all of the photos that I sent our guests can also be found on our blog and on our Instagram page. Yeah. I mean, the first thing that comes to mind when looking at these photos of, especially of Jennifer as a little kid, is people send us photos of themselves at the age that they were into American Girl all the time. Um, And, you know, just getting to see like what they were like as a child when, you know, whether it's American Girl or any kind of childhood nostalgia thing was peak for you. And, you know, I think with like some of these cases, like it's easy to maybe like forget like, oh my gosh, like this is a little girl that was, you know, just like countless other women who were once little girls that we've talked to for our podcast. And if she was born in 1981 and this took place in 1991, you know, she was an early adopter of American Girl. Yeah, definitely. And I think too, just seeing these photos and hearing from Jenny's friend what she was like and those special memories together, like... Laura and I always begin our podcast asking our guests what they were like growing up and these little anecdotes and just hearing that she was a Leo, just like Laura and I am, like it's just really tying everything together. And the fact that she had an American girl, which I know we'll connect on shortly, sadly, but seeing these photos and hearing the story, you know, especially the beginning of the story and what seems like a very happy life really just humanizes this entire situation and the victims. And these are real people with real lives and their stories deserve to be told, and especially with respect and empathy. So I'm glad that, you know, they're being remembered here today. That brings us to the morning of Monday, January 14th, 1991. Marcy's coworkers suspected that something was terribly wrong because she failed to show up to her job at the State Department of Justice, where she was an analyst. Repeated calls to the Jacobs family went unanswered, causing their concern for Marcy's well-being to escalate. These co-workers immediately took action, and they drove to Marcy's house to check up on her. As for their names, how many of them, and why they chose to drive there rather than call the police for a wellness check, we don't know. Like many older unsolved cases, There's details about it that either aren't available to the public or have been lost in the years since it's gone cold. What we do know is that once Mary's colleagues arrive at the Jacobs family home on Robertson Way, they notice the unlocked door and discover the horrific crime scene behind it. The authorities are notified, and it's soon learned that the entire Jacobs family, Marcy, Mick, and eight-year-old Jenny, were murdered. 
ABC 10 reports that all three of the Jacobs family members suffered at least one bullet wound to their head. The kitchen was untouched, while the living room was, in contrast, a horrible scene. The brutality of the crime shocked the quiet community, and it actually led the city to eventually change the home's address. The lead detective on scene recalls that you could see where Marcy had been shot and that it had been done in close range while she had been sitting on the couch. After being shot, Marcy was still alive, and she ran to the bathroom and attempted to use the door for protection, but it wasn't any use. The offender continued after her, stabbing and cutting Marcy until she eventually succumbed to her injuries. That same detective recalls painfully that it was one of the worst crime scenes he's ever seen. Investigators found young Jenny in her bedroom. She had also, as Natalie said, been shot in the head. This is where it gets extremely heart-wrenching, especially for us American girl women. Her beloved American girl doll, which she had one of the historic dolls, Molly, from the 1940s, was lying on the floor next to Jenny's bed with blood on it. It's so clear that at the most horrific moment in her life, the one thing that was near her for comfort was her American Girl doll. And I'm sure there's a lot of times us American Girl women can think back to when we had our dolls with us, our girls with us during hard times, good times, fun times. It's just so heartbreaking and just draws me into this case so much. Mm -hmm. Definitely. It's just beyond heartbreaking to think about, you know, her final moments. And, you know, up until this point, she was just a regular little girl with her American Girl doll, with her Molly. And it's just, you know, hard to even imagine that this happened. It's just so incredibly heart-wrenching. Truly. And, you know, thinking about, again, like, what were we like as young girls of that you know, eight to 10 kind of age range and, you know, how terrifying this would have been. And and also just thinking about she, prior to this horrible experience, had her Molly doll in bed with her. Like maybe she read some of the same Molly books that we have all read. Maybe she had looked at an American Girl doll catalog with her mother or her grandmother what was the process like for her of getting this Molly doll? Was it something that she had desperately wanted for a long time? Is it something a relative introduced her to? It's just, you know, even though it's just a child's toy and a crime scene photo, because American Girl has such strong roots in all of our growing up experiences that when you see it, it it doesn't feel like you're just seeing a, a child's toy. It, it feels like you're sort of like connecting with this victim on a deeper level of shared experience of girlhood, you know, prior to this horrific tragedy. I could not have put that better. And I have some of those same questions. And it's exactly because that Molly doll did bring up those shared experiences you just mentioned. So I appreciate that perspective. That's exactly what I was feeling, but I would have never been able to put words to it, shockingly enough. Well, I I do think it's just like, you know, also something that we all associate with such a positive time in our childhood. And, you know, I'm sure that she did as well. And so to see it in this in this setting is also 
it's a very interesting juxtaposition of light and darkness too, I think. It's definitely something that can really hit any American girl women out there. Right. And I think too, just to like add to that, through our podcast, we've been able to connect with so many wonderful people across the U.S., even internationally, who had experiences with American Girl. And we're kind of seeing them, you know, as they grew up and what their experience was like with American Girl and kind of led them into becoming the person who they are today. But with Jenny, like, we don't have that rest of the story. You know, it was cut short when she was so young. And I think that is just so incredibly tragic. And I think, you know, thinking about, like, the conversations that we have each week on our podcast, it really just drives it home that like, you know, not everyone has had that opportunity to to grow from American Girl. And I think American Girl has taught us so many beautiful life lessons and it's just so incredibly heartbreaking that this happened. I'm truly speechless. The crime scene photo of the American Girl doll covered in blood is truly a photo I will never be able to forget. It is a sobering image of the realities of what happened to Jenny and her family. The doll represents this innocence of childhood, of girlhood, and the blood spatter all over it is a stark contrast and a representation of the evil that's alive in this world today. Exactly. You're absolutely right that Jenny was young, but Marcy and Mick were too. Jenny was nine, Marcy was 31, and Mick was 33. Now, Mick was found outside in their detached garage. Besides finding Mick in the garage, investigators found that inside the garage, there was a large safe. And Mick was found at the base of that safe. He too, like Natalie had also mentioned earlier, had passed from a gunshot wound to the head, what they refer to as execution style. Nobody, not even any of the neighbors, reported seeing or hearing anything when investigators canvassed the neighborhood. You would think if he's in the garage that, you know, that's a bit outside. So maybe somebody could have heard or seen something, a light, a boom. But no, the detectives say that they're not that surprised by this though. But unfortunately, it causes an issue in terms of trying to figure out the timing of the death, of Mick's death, of Jenny's death, of Marcy's death. Outside of it being important data for the case, it's helpful for the investigation in a lot of ways. Because of that, they kind of theorized and tried to figure out the best they could. And they believed that the family was murdered January 13th, later in the evening, and that the murderer exited through the side door because that side door had been left unlocked. They also theorized that the murder was linked to the large safe that Mick was found at the base of. This safe that Mick was found in front of was found open. Oddly enough, the open safe still had items left in it when the police found it. More importantly, what this told investigators was that whoever had murdered Mick, Marcy, and Jenny may have wanted something or some things out of the safe, but not everything. The items that were left behind included money that wasn't Mick's money. Moreover, this safe didn't even belong to Mick. So why was it in his garage? Well, according to his sister, the safe belonged to a man named Richard. He went by Ricky. So that's what we're going to call him. 
Now, Ricky was a childhood friend of Mick's. The two grew up in the same neighborhood as the kids and they were, you know, the park kids that we were talking about earlier. And they continued that friendship long into their adulthood. So that's who's safe he was looking after. So we know the men are friends, but now you're probably wondering, what was Ricky's safe doing in Mick's garage? Why do you have possession of it? Well, it turns out that Ricky was a known drug dealer and he had asked Mick to do him a huge favor by storing the safe for him while he was in jail. The only caveat was he wouldn't tell Mick the contents of the safe, which we now believe to have been an assortment of things, including gold, a stash of meth, and between $150,000 and $300,000. Nobody knows for sure though. That's because Ricky went missing after being released from his 120-day stint in jail three weeks before Mick, Marcy, and Jennifer were killed. There's no way of knowing what exactly happened to Ricky, but the assumption is that he was also killed because nobody, not even his daughter, has seen or heard from Ricky in over 33 years. Investigators further assume Ricky confessed to his murder or murderers, the whereabouts of the safe, and that ultimately led to the death of the Jacobs family. Before this tragedy, Land Park hadn't seen a homicide in over a decade. Three detectives were originally assigned to the case, among them lead detective John Cabrera, who worked diligently on it from 1991 to his 2002 retirement. Detective Cabrera says about the murderers that these were not ordinary people. The investigator's working theory is that whoever is responsible for the murders was known to the Jacobs family and were let into the home. More than that, they believe the who is probably more than just one person. And they believe this for multiple reasons. First, the weapons used on Mick, Marcy, and Jennifer were of a different caliber. And second, it's speculated that the murderers were known well enough to the family that no survivors were left because they could easily identify them if they just had attacked them and left them alive. It's reported that DNA was collected from the crime scene, but that's as much information about that aspect of the investigation that's out there. When autopsies were performed on the family, Mick and Marcy's reports shocked investigators. The reports indicated a small amount of meth in both of their systems. However, it's super important to note that neither of them had a criminal record and there was no evidence in the family home that suggested any type of habitual drug use. On top of some of those complications that we've already discussed, there were some impacts on the investigation. One, there was a labor dispute going on in the city, and investigators weren't being paid for their overtime. So the manpower for the investigation was really impacted. And then, on top of that, two days after the murders, the Gulf War broke out, and the Jacobs family quickly had faded from the headlines and media coverage. Little progress was made in the subsequent years, until it finally went cold. The case remained cold until 2002 when a now-retired Detective Cabrera earned a federal grant. And that allowed him to reopen the investigation within the cold case division of the Sacramento Police Department. He used this opportunity to, as he says, quote, look at different avenues, trying to think outside the box in terms of people involved, and finally narrowed it down and found an individual who I believe possibly had some information. The person in question was incarcerated at the time. He spoke with Detective Cabrera about the Jacobs family homicide. 
but soon after cut off all communication with the investigators due to the advice of his attorney. Soon after that, the grant funding ran dry, forcing Detective Cabrera and the case to leave the cold case division after all. Detective Cabrera officially left the case when his successor, Detective Pat Higgins, joined the case in 2010. Since then, persons of interest have been re-interviewed and there's hope that as scientific advancements continue, more answers will come from the DNA that was found at the crime scene. In 2018, California's Governor Brown signed an official state of California order that offered $50,000 as a reward for any new information that led to an arrest or conviction in this case. The reward is still available today. If you or anyone you know has information about the Jacobs family homicides, call the Sacramento Police Department at 916-264-5471. We want to thank you so much, Laura and Lindsay, for joining us today. Make sure you guys check out their podcast and their Instagram account. Lindsay and Laura, why don't you tell them where they can find you? Totally. You could find us at American Girl Women, wherever you listen to podcasts, and American Girl Women on Instagram. Excellent. And don't forget to follow us at the Murder Diaries pod on all of our socials. And until then, stay safe. Bye. Bye. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.